Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Ruth. Uh, tonight, what I want to do is, is kind of conclude uh, the series that we were in just at the end, but sort of before the, the, the summer came on, uh, which was a series called Keeping It Real, looking at, at the book of James. And we almost finished the series on Sunday evening, the 3rd of July. I, I've called tonight Reality Check because I want to do two things. The first is I, I want to think back and kind of review some key lessons. Uh, in a sense, I want to offer an opportunity for a reality check, for a bit of a reality check list. I'm, I'm going to do that towards the end of what I'm going to share. But the second thing I'd like to do is, and I know I need to do this, is I need to say something more on some of the last verses that are in the letter that James wrote. And the, you who are here on the 3rd of July will know that I promised I would come back and do this. So I am just being true to my word, okay? So if you have a, a copy of God's word with you, or if you want to grab one of the ones that are in the pews, we're going to look again at James chapter 5. It's, it's page 1216. And we're just going to read the final eight verses of the letter. And, and look at a few of them in particular. So do you want to stand with me for the public reading of God's word? It's headed in the NIV, the prayer of faith. And James writes, Is any among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would rain, and it did not rain, or sorry, that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Grab a seat. So in, in this last section, James writes about prayer. The kind of, of prayer that changes things. And so he starts by saying, listen, if, if any of you are in trouble, pray. If any of you are in a good place, sing songs of praise. In effect, what he's encouraging people, individuals, us to do is reflect all of life upwards. Whatever is going on, says James, talk to God. Sing to God. In a sense, what he's saying, voice of prayer, voice of praise. In every circumstance, every situation, every eventuality, refer it heavenwards. Refer it heavenwards. And then he homes in on a specific life experience. He homes in on sickness and illness. Now, from verses 14 to 16, th there's a lot going on. And on the 3rd of July, I, I focused in on the practice or the discipline of the holy habit of confession. And I, I highlighted the need not to avoid this one another ministry. Partly because it tends to be the one that, that many 
Christians shy away from, and, and it's understandable that we shy away from it. We're okay with encouraging one another, with comforting one another, with being patient with one another. It's, it's harder to forgive one another, but we, we get that. Admonishing one another, again, we're okay with it. But when it comes to confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other, we find that rather different. We're not too sure about it. There, there seems to be too many risks attached to it. There is real potential for mess. And, and we looked at some of those issues back at the beginning of July. But in terms of praying for the sick, of calling the elders, of anointing with oil and healing, I didn't say a lot. In, in fact, I said nothing at all. It was far too close to my holidays. Now, as I said that night, this, this last section of James is well known as being one of the hardest to understand in the whole letter. And perhaps, as some have suggested, it's one of the hardest little sections to understand in the entire New Testament. So I'm not going to be able to explain everything fully. I'm not going to unlock the meaning entirely. But I do want to make a few comments about what is not going on here what I don't think this is about and yet others have veered towards. Please do talk to me about this afterwards. But to start with, what this is not about is last rites, as some have taken it and used it as a basis for. Where someone who is thought to be on their deathbed is anointed with oil by a specific individual, confesses their sins to a specific individual, and is therefore somehow prepped and sorted before they die. Now, there are certain elements of that practice in this text, but I don't think, I don't believe that is what James has in mind here. For a start, confession of sins here seems to be to each other, not just to one person. But maybe more importantly, the expectation of this passage is that the sick person will get better rather than die. Secondly, this is not about, this is not a basis for special healing meetings or rallies or events that involve a gifted healer. For a start, and you, you can see this and you know this, this is set in the context of a private home. This is in the sick person's house or it's by their bedside. Plus, the initiative to receive prayer or ministry comes from the person who is suffering. They request it. They ask for it. And finally, it is for want of a better or worse phrase, it is for run-of-the-mill elders who are called for. Church elders, not specifically gifted healers. Another less than helpful take on these verses is the idea and the suggestion that what, what James is teaching, what James is pushing here is that believing prayer will always lead to healing. And some people again have taken this in this way. That believing prayer will always lead to healing. Or then there's that associated idea that if we just have enough faith, if you just had more faith than you or someone that you care about would be healed. 
I just don't believe that perspective fits with the wider teaching of the Bible. And so in Scripture, we see examples of godly, sick people not being healed. I'll give you one example. When Timothy has a problem with his stomach, Paul doesn't mention anything about needing enough or more faith in order to be healed. What does Paul suggest? I was going to say he cracks open a bottle of Merlot, but he, that he has some wine. Now, I'm not saying Timothy shouldn't have been prayed for or shouldn't have asked for prayer. But I'm just making the point that we cannot use, and this is, there's a danger always in this, we cannot use one text, one reference to determine and entirely color our perspective on an issue that the rest of Scripture refers to and speaks into from a slightly different perspective. Believing prayer does not always lead to healing. Plus, we also need to think about what the Bible teaches more generally about the nature of faith because what makes our faith stronger is not its intensity as though we need to kind of work ourselves up into a state of absolute belief and if we have absolute belief then we will be healed what makes our faith strong is the one in whom our faith is placed what makes our faith strong is the one it's Jesus the one on whom our faith is placed. So, so to suggest that only people with a certain amount of faith enjoy particular kinds of healing appears to go against the grain of what the Bible communicates elsewhere, both about healing and about faith. Plus, some of this, the suggestions that go along with this thinking, I honestly believe are really quite dangerous. Christians of good faith and good conscience can be crushed and have been crushed. And I, I guarantee you, some of you know of those who have been. Crushed by claims that if only they had exercised enough faith or enough believing prayer, then they or someone close to them would have been healed or would have been delivered of their affliction. And what can, that can lead to is a, is, is a couple of things. One, the person involved either gets the place of, rejects, of rejecting God because they believe as far as they are concerned, God hasn't kept his side of the deal. I did pray believing. I did have enough faith, God, and yet, and yet this person's not healed. And so they reject God. Or the other thing they do is they reject themselves thinking I'm a spiritual failure. I don't have what it takes or what others clearly have. It's dangerous. It's unhelpful. And the final comment I want to make about what's not, in a sense, going on here, I believe, relates to a reaction that some people have against some of those skewed interpretations that I've just highlighted. Because some people then argue, and in a sense running away from those skewed interpretations, some people then argue that what James is dealing with here is not so much physical sickness and healing, but spiritual weakness and restoration. That's what's being spoken into. And so for example, whenever James talks about the person being made well, what he really means is that they have been spiritually strengthened. 
And so what he's, what he's speaking into and what he's dealing with here is, is someone who's in the throes of a kind of spiritual crisis and therefore what they need to do is they need to call the church elders to pray with them and for them in order to help them to get through it. But you see, if that was what James had in mind, surely he would have been more clear about that. I mean, James is so straight from the hip about everything else. Surely he would have been more clear if that's what he was talking about. And so while we might get a little nervous about a non-biblical or dangerous emphasis on healing from these verses, it is a stretch, it is a nonsense to suggest that there is no mention of physical healing from sickness in what James writes. Now, having said all of that, which I realize will have sounded rather negative, (laughs) it, it does lead and leave an obvious question. So what does it mean? What did James have in mind? Well, back to what I said earlier, I don't really know. And I'm not sure anybody does either, which is why there is so much debate and discussion around these verses. It's why it is seen as one of the hardest parts of this letter, hardest parts of the entire New Testament to really get our heads around. But if I just left it at that, that would be a cop-out. And, and I know some of you say, yeah, you're, you're generally quite good at that. And I am generally quite good at it. But, but I do want to make a few comments on it. So let's go back to verse 13, because th- that's the starting point. So what James is saying is, listen, there is no situation in life where prayer to God is not relevant. That's really what he's saying. There's no situation, if you're in trouble, if you're happy, there is no situation in life where prayer is not relevant and is not right, and that includes times of sickness. So praying when you're sick and praying for people who are sick is good, it's appropriate, it's understandable, it's commendable. And as part of that practice and that approach, there may be times when you should invite the elders to call around and pray with you and pray for you, and anoint you with oil, and include confession of sins to each other as necessary. And and given that prayer is, as James says, powerful and effective, or the prayer of a righteous person is, according to verse 16, and remember what he does then is he takes Elijah as an example, somebody who was a person of prayer but wasn't perfect, Someone who didn't always get it right, but he was right with God. And therefore, prayer in the hands of someone who is right with God can make an impact. It is powerful. It is effective. So in response to the prayers of the elders who are not perfect, who don't always get it right, what James is saying, allow their prayers. Allow their prayers to impact your situation and your circumstances powerfully and effectively. And so for me and for us as a church, we have and we do as elders respond to people's request for prayer. And so when people come to us and say, I would love you and some of the elders to come around and pray with me, for me, we will go and we will anoint with oil and we will pray. But let me zoom out a little further and draw attention to an additional dimension to this because what I want to do as well is I want to set these verses in context of this letter. 
Because again, it's so dangerous whenever we just lift, not just verses, but even chunks of letters out of context of the entire book. Because the great pressing issue behind this letter, we said this right from the start, is spiritual drift. Which James refers to as double-mindedness. He talks about this in his letter. He also refers to it as spiritual adultery. And he writes about the need that if you're drifting, if you're double-minded, if you're committing spiritual adult, you need to come back to God. You need, to use the title of the series, you need to keep it real. And so it is into this context that James discusses sickness. And, and this, this is where it is so important. Which means that one of the issues we've got to bear in mind and we've got to wrestle with in this last little section, is that what James may have in mind are those situations whenever sickness is the result of sin. Whenever sickness is the result of spiritual drifting and therefore requires or warrants the ministry of the church leadership. Now, I am fully aware. Please hear me loud and clear in this that the New Testament urges great caution about casually making this sort of connection. It urges it strongly. Sickness is part and parcel of life, general life, in a broken and fallen world. We get sick because we live in a sinful world, not necessarily because we have messed up. And Jesus strongly warned his disciples about assuming someone's affliction was the result of a particular sin. You'll remember that from one of the gospel incidents where a man was brought to Jesus and the disciples said, is it because of a particular sin that he is this way? And Jesus said, here, be very careful. Be very careful. But there are some occasions in the New Testament where sickness is the result of sin. Jesus warned the healed invalid, see, you are well again, Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Or as Paul wrote to the, to the wayward Corinthian believers, he said, and we've kind of thought about this a little tonight as we approach this table. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And a number of you have fallen asleep. It's interesting. So there can be a connection between sickness and spiritual drift and sin. And if that is a possibility, says James, then invite the elders to pray for you. Confess your sin to each other. And if there is a connection then through prayer, you may be made well, in body and in spirit. Now, as I say, I'm fully aware that we've got to be careful with this. We, we must not make glib connections or unhelpful assumptions. But in times of ill health, in times of ill health, what James seems to be saying is a period of self-reflection, self-examination is never a bad thing. And if we become aware during a time of personal specific reflection of unconfessed sins, then it may be appropriate 
to invite the church elders to come around and to pray with you and to pray for you and to confess your sins. That's not to say healing is automatic, but maybe more importantly, it does say that forgiveness is. Now, I appreciate that that raises a pile of questions and thoughts, and in some ways, I really should be opening this up for people to go, right, hang on a minute, I need to query something here. And I'm inviting you to do that with me afterwards or send me emails. <laughs> but as we grapple with God's word, let's allow it to speak to us and shape us in certain areas where, where necessary. So I've attempted to deal with verses 14 to 16. But as I close, I did want to give you or offer you a reality checklist based on this entire series. Because I've said, as, as I've mentioned, James wrote this letter to help Christians avoid spiritual drift. To help Christians who were in a place of double-mindedness, who were committing spiritual adultery, to come back to God. And so he wrote this letter to say, listen, keep it real. Keep it real. I want to help you. And so as we reflect back on some of the ways he says we do this, how, how do we keep it real? I'm going to show you a list now that, that we have considered that I believe helps us to monitor the authenticity of our Christian faith. Please do, when you leave here this evening, tonight, this week, whenever, please do read through the letter of James in one sitting. But here are some of the identifying features of real Christianity, or as James calls it, true religion. Here's what characterizes true religion. Here's how you keep it real. Here's what the real thing looks like, according to James. You think differently about trials. How do you think differently about trials, according to James, if you are in the right place and a good place? You consider them pure joy because you see their potential for personal growth. How do you see trials? James says, if, if you're the authentic deal, you'll consider them pure joy because you'll have God's perspective on them. Second thing, you hear, you accept, and you obey God's word because what did James say to his readers? Don't merely listen to the word do what it says. Do we? Do we? The next thing that James says, I'm just kind of going through week by week in a sense of what we have looked at. The next thing James says, the authentic Christian, they care for those in need. They look out for the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the distressed, the weak. Next thing, you don't show favoritism. The next thing, you practice royal law, says James. You love your neighbor. You show mercy, not judgment. You express, you prove, you demonstrate the reality of your faith in good deeds. Because why faith? without action, is dead. 
you tame your tongue. You recognize how lethal your words can be and you bear that in mind as you speak. You submit to God. You resist the devil. You draw near to God. And then the final thing, you reflect all of life upwards. If you're happy, pray. Or if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing. And so as we bring this to a close this evening, I'm going to invite the guys to come back. And I'm going to leave that list up. And as I say, this is a kind of reality checklist uh, as we reflect back on our, our journey through the letter of James. And we're going to sing just one more song and then we're done. But I've asked if we could just play it through once. Just take some time to look down that list and use it as a bit of a way of, not measuring, because it's not about measuring, but just as about a way of saying, okay, God, I don't want to just merely listen to your word. I don't want to just listen to a series. I don't want to listen to what you're saying. I want to actually do and engage in order that my faith is the real thing. It is authentic.